to help bring us into this event and to moderate our discussion, I will now introduce Christopher, Bar Christopher Barrett, who is um, the professor, the Stephen B. and Janice G. Ashley Professor of Applied Economics and Management and International Professor of Agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. He also holds professorships in the Department of Economics and of Global Development and is a fellow of the Cornell Atkinson Center for Sustainability. He's co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Food Policy and has published over 300 publications. Professor Barrett is an elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association, and the African Association of Agricultural Economists. He has previously served as the president of the Association of Christian Economics. Chris, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the Lumen Christie Institute, and thank you for helping to organize tonight's event. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate the chance to join you and the others. And I wanna start by sincerely thanking the Lumen Christie Institute and the co-sponsor organizations for creating this opportunity for tonight's conversation. And we're very grateful to those of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to join us, thank you. The opportunity to talk about food security is extremely appealing to me. I've spent a lot of my career on this. And before I introduce our four distinguished speakers, I'd also like to offer just a few brief thoughts on the topic as a practicing Catholic, as well as an economist who spends time on these topics. Less than two weeks ago, we concluded the Roman Catholic liturgical year with the celebration of Christ the King. The gospel reading, some of you will recall, was the familiar teaching from Matthew 25. Amen, I say to you, Whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers, you did for me. And Jesus went on to instruct us that he, Jesus, is the hungry. He is the food insecure. Thus, we will be judged accordingly. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. We must beware of the hypocrisy of our own righteousness. Prayer and fasting and devotion are all wonderful and important. But how will the food insecure judge us? After all, they should and do, and will. For that is how Christ tells us that he will judge us. Further, Christ cautions us in Luke 12, 48, that from everyone to whom much is given will much be required, and from those to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. We, the privileged, should and will be held to a higher standard. From our plenty of treasure, talent, and time, do we attend sufficiently and effectively to others' need? That's a question we should each be asking ourselves daily. And answering those questions requires knowing who is food insecure in this country and around the world. Who is it that should and will sit in judgment of us? What do the food insecure need? What are we doing for them? Can we do it better? Are we tending to them so steadfastly as we would to Christ? Christ is not only the food insecure. He is also us. Is the Christ in us responding to the Christ in the food insecure, as is his stated will? Or do we ignore or sinfully allow ourselves to get distracted from the Christ within us in response to food insecurity in our communities? A prominent thread of my research group's work has studied the drivers and consequences of food insecurity around the world and international food assistance programming responses to those needs. 
we've explored topics ranging from how US policies impact the cost and timeliness and economic impacts and cultural and nutritional appropriateness, even the excess mortality effects of US food aid policies to how poverty and nutrition co-move uh, in communities over time. I'd like to believe that we've seen significant tangible progress in international food assistance over the quarter century that I've been studying the topic. And those advances owe a lot to rigorous research, identifying problems and their solutions, combined with concerted action by people of goodwill, many of them people of faith, motivated by sacred text calls to feed the hungry, like those that we heard uh, on Christ the King. Nevertheless, in a world of unprecedented plenty, tonight, almost three quarters of a billion people, that's billion with a B, will go to bed hungry. And today, three million, sorry, three billion people will be unable to afford a healthy diet. They might not go to bed with empty stomachs feeling pangs of hunger, but they won't have been able to afford to feed their families healthfully. Now that proportion is lower in the US, roughly 10 or 11% before the pandemic struck, but it's still far too high for the richest society in human history. So my research group has recently begun to work on US food insecurity as well. We're especially interested in the persistence of food insecurity because temporary food insecurity caused, for example, by a short bout of unemployment is quite different than the sort of sustained uh, food insecurity that can be precipitated by a disability or by homelessness or the fracturing of a family. And today we're finding that roughly half of those who fall into food security in food insecurity in any given year remain food insecure two or more years later Perhaps unsurprisingly, that rate of chronic and persistence of food insecurity increases during economic downturns of the sort we're experiencing now. And it's much higher among black-headed households, female-headed households, and those who have disabilities. So adverse economic shocks and pre-existing disadvantage conspire to thrust people into food insecurity where they don't know how they'll feed their families next week. So this is an opportune moment for this conversation because food insecurity rates in the United States have likely doubled in the wake of the massive economic dislocation of the pandemic. And the physical, emotional, and psychological burden of food insecurity is felt disproportionately by our most vulnerable neighbors, those who have been not been graced with the same education, race, good health, or good fortune that my fellow panelists and I share. Through its impacts on food insecurity and other ills that disfigure our communities, the pandemic has laid bare many systemic problems in the US. It shines an embarrassingly bright light on our sinful failure to care adequately for the least among us, just as Christ so explicitly directs us to do. Tonight, we're quite blessed to hear from three experts in food insecurity and Catholic social teaching. Let me briefly introduce them in turn and then ask for their reflections of roughly 10 minutes each. When they'll finish, we'll take about two minutes or less to each flag key takeaway thoughts from the discussion and then open the floor to comments and questions from the audience. Please use the, uh, the, the Q&A feature to pose your question or to make a comment. Michael's kindly keeping track of all these for me. Um, going alphabetically, our first speaker will be the economist Craig Gunderson. Craig is the ACES Distinguished Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Agricultural and Consumer Economics 
at the University of Illinois. He is on the technical advisory group for Feeding America. He's the lead researcher on Feeding America's Map the Meal Gap project, and he's the managing editor of Applied Economic Perspectives and Policy. He's also a roundtable member of the Farm Foundation, a non-resident senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and a faculty affiliate of the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities at the University of Notre Dame. His research concentrates on the causes and consequences of food insecurity and on the evaluation of food assistance programs with an emphasis on SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Following Craig, we'll hear from the theologian Margie File. Margie is an associate teaching professor at the University of Notre Dame, holding a joint appointment in the Department of Theology and the Center for Social Concerns. She's also a faculty fellow of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. She's a founder and resident of the St. Peter Claver Catholic Worker Community in South Bend. She has co-edited multiple books and is co-author of The Scandal of White Complicity in U.S. Hyper-Incarceration, A Nonviolent Spirituality of White Resistance. Our final distinguished panelist is the economist Bruce Weber. Bruce is Emeritus Professor of Applied Economics and Extension Economics and Director of the Rural Studies Program at, the, at, excuse me, at Oregon State University. He formerly served as co-director of the Rural Policy Research Institute's Rural Poverty Research Center. His current research program focuses on upward mobility and economic inequality in rural and urban areas, rural-urban economic interdependence, and the impacts of changes in social safety net programs. He is a fellow of the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association and is a distinguished scholar of the Western Agricultural Economics Association. So if the panelists would please turn on your videos, I'm sure our audience would welcome the chance to see you. I'm honored to be with you tonight and to be a part of this discussion. I'm very excited to hear from these three speakers. We're richly blessed to have the opportunity to listen to such knowledgeable experts this evening. So without further ado, let me invite Craig to share his reflections, please. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I wanted to thank, like Chris did, everybody for joining us tonight. Uh, this is really exciting for me. The, you know, some of my favorite organizations around the country are sponsoring this, so this really is an honor. I'm also excited to be on this panel. Um, as many of you know, Bruce and Chris are truly giants in the ag econ profession, so I always love being on panels with the two of them. And Margie, oh, we haven't met prior to today, but uh, I graduated from Notre Dame in 1990, and my two sons are there now. Um, and actually, I worked at Casa Juan Diego down in Houston, Texas, which is a Houston Catholic worker house down there. And I would actually say Dorothy Day's Long Loneliness is really was one of the main reasons I became an economist. So the Catholic worker movement had a huge influence on, on my life. Um, is that So today, let's begin by talking about what we mean by uh, food insecurity. Okay? There's a well-established set of 18 questions on food hardships. Um, and these have been in place since 1996. And these questions range from, were you unable to have enough money to afford a balanced diet, all the way up to the most severe question, did a child ever not eat for a full day? Okay? And the way this is defined then is that if somebody is responds to three or more of those 18 questions, that household will be defined as food insecure. Okay? This has become, I would say, Without, with some question, is one of the leading indicators, not the leading indicator of the well being of vulnerable families in the United States. It receives a great deal of attention every year when they put out the um, annual report from USDA on this. Now, it's great. During COVID, there's been a lot more attention paid to, um, there's been a lot more attention paid to food insecurity. 
But to echo some of what Chris was talking about, COVID, I mean, food insecurity has been a huge problem before COVID. It's a big problem during COVID. And it's going to be a big problem in the United States unless we do something about it post-COVID. So this is not something that's confined to the COVID area. So prior to COVID is there was roughly 35 million Americans who were in food insecure households, okay? Work that uh, Feeding America and myself have done, have projected, this is likely to rise between 50 and 55 million in 2020 due to the uh, pandemic. So much higher rates, but still even pre-COVID is 35 million Americans. And at the height of the great recession, it was approximately 50 million, like we're projecting for now. A long-term problem in the United States. Now, the, the, the food insecurity is not distributed evenly across um, our country. And in fact, Bruce is gonna talk a little bit about the geographic variation even within uh, Corvallis. And so, Corvallis, Oregon. And then, so, but the other thing is, is for those of you who are interested is there's something called Map the Meal Gap. If you Google that, it's on Feeding America's website. You can go and look at for your county or for whatever county you're interested in looking at food insecurity for those areas and the projections for food insecurity during COVID. It's not only not distributed evenly geographically, but it's not distributed evenly across socio-demographic groups. There's extensive literature that's examined whether or not a household is food insecure. And one, the first thing I wanna emphasize about that, it's not just poverty. A lot of people think it's only poor people who are food insecure and no non-poor people are food insecure. That's just not true. Is 70% of poor people are food secure. I'm gonna talk about some of the reasons for why this is the case. But there's about 15% of those who are non-poor who are food insecure. So we have to move beyond just looking at this poverty as a reason for food insecurity. And one indicator that I wanna talk about today is what is the leading indicator of food insecurity in our leading predictor of food insecurity in our country, namely disability status, okay? Is those with disabilities, whether it be mental health challenges or whether it be physical health challenges are much, much more likely to be food insecure even after controlling other factors. Especially important is the, uh, is, is mental health challenges that people face. So I, the part of the reason I wanna emphasize this is we talk a lot about people being vulnerable during COVID. Those with these disabilities are oftentimes those who are most vulnerable because A, because they're working in jobs that are oftentimes lost their jobs, okay? And another thing about it is oftentimes they have the most difficulties and challenges navigating a, a completely new scenario in their lives. So I like, so I really want to emphasize this. I also want to mention that our, our church has been so wonderful at providing this dignity to those with disabilities, whether those disabilities be visible or as importantly, the invisible disabilities. And so I, Margie and Bruce may touch on this a little bit, but I, really, I think it's really an important issue that we need to be talking more about our society, in our society. Oftentimes those with disabilities, especially those with mental health disabilities are, are invisible and that's unfortunate. Now, I'm reluctant to talk too much about so this is the determinants. And now momentarily I'm gonna talk about some of the things that we can do in our society to address food insecurity and what we are doing. And I'm a little bit, you know, given, uh, given the theologians and this panel, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk too much about it, but there is this concept of the right to food. And our church has had a long tradition of emphasizing really, in many of the ways that Chris was talking about his introductory comments is this notion that there is this profound right to food and in fact, in one of the encyclicals, I forget, I think it's uh, St. John the 23rd talked about this, is that if you're not feeding the poor, you are killing them. And which is a huge incumbent notion upon all of us to address food insecurity. 
Okay, so there's this long tradition within our church through encyclicals. And interestingly, is even though know, the right to food has become quite popular in other spheres, is if you look at the secular tradition in terms of right to food, it actually closely mirrors our um, Catholicism with minus some of the, the religious terminology. And for those who are interested in some of these issues pertaining to the right to food in the Catholic Church is uh, actually in the Credo newsletter in the autumn 2019, Chris, Bruce, and I all have articles in there in case you're interested in some of this. Okay, and my favorite quote, I won't go into all this long discussion about the right to food, but my favorite, one of my favorite quotes about this is from Pope Emeritus Benedict, where he says in the Lord's Prayer, we don't say, give us this day my daily bread. We say, give us this day our daily bread. And it's really, I think a profound thing is, I really like that quote a lot in terms of really centering us about what we mean in terms of providing this right to food. Now, in the United States, we do not have a, a de jour, right to food, but in many ways, we actually have a de facto right to food over some dimensions that, are, that I wanna talk about, uh, that I wanna talk about briefly to conclude my, my comments. Now, you know, from my perspective, solving food insecurity in our country is relatively straightforward and easy, okay? We have this amazing program called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, colloquially, previously known as the Food Stamp Program, that's been in existence for over 50 years. From my perspective, it's the most successful government program that we have today. It sets out to alleviate food insecurity and it achieves that goal. Study after study after study has demonstrated the success of this program. Most government programs would love to have this success. And I wanna point out one thing is, is that our church teaches us clearly the notion of subsidiarity. We should try to do things at the most local level. And I know Margie and Bruce will both be talking about this. And, and in general, I'm not a fan of some of these government programs, but SNAP is an exception. I think it's really a program that's a well-designed program over many dimensions. And I wanna talk about three of them today. The first is with respect to the size of the benefits that, that the persons get, okay? At a maximum for a family of four, it's $8,400 a year that gives people uh, resources to purchase food. Now, I would like to see that larger. I have a few papers and others have written on this about why we should have higher SNAP benefits. I think that could even be more successful if we had this, but also um, is not only is it large, but it's also large in terms of the number of people it reaches. There's an estimate that roughly half of all Americans are receive SNAP at some point in their lives. It's a, it's a wonderful program in terms of the size. The second key component of it is it's, its entitlement status, okay? Is that we have this program that it doesn't require the administration to increase um, the size of the program or anything. It automatically responds. So during COVID, it automatically responded to an increase in demand for, um, for its resources as it's done every year. It's a counter-cyclical program. So during good economic times, it then, uh, the, the, uh, falls in terms of the total expenditures and total number of people in the program. The third point why I love SNAP and I, the, the, what, what makes me so excited about SNAP is SNAP's a great program. Anyway, one thing that makes me so excited about SNAP is the fact that it gives dignity and autonomy to vulnerable households in our society, okay? Too often is, I mean, it's really hard being poor in our country. You're around all this opulence, and then you, it's, such, it's a challenge to be food insecure, to be poor in our, in our household. And so often I think that people in our society have a condescending and patronizing attitude towards low-income households and also being very judgmental of them. One thing I love about SNAP is if I'm a SNAP recipient, I get to go to a food store and use the benefit to purchase food that I think is correct for my family. Okay? It doesn't say, here's how you should do things in your life as a, as a vulnerable person. 
we will give you that dignity and that autonomy to make those own choices for your family. And moreover, it allows people to, to walk alongside their neighbors and their families when they're making food purchase. They don't have to go somewhere else. They can do it this all together. So that's the final thing is the church teaches us is about this right to food, but this right to food must be given with dignity and autonomy. And I really think SNAP does this. To conclude, food insecurity is a serious problem in our country. And I think the work by Margie and Bruce in terms of what they're doing at the local level combined with SNAP is a powerful way for us to alleviate food insecurity in the United States and guarantee this right to food. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Craig. We really appreciate your reflections. Margie. Yes, hi. Um, well, it's a delight to be here tonight with all of you. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I feel um, honored to be among uh, expert economists, uh, which I am not. So I'm happy to provide um, uh, some touchstones theologically and look forward to the conversation as we pull these pieces together. Um, and I come to this topic from a particular context as, as each of us does. Uh, so I'll just say a little bit about that first um, before getting into some of the theological underpinnings. For more than 17 years, I've been part of the St. Peter Claver Catholic Worker Community here in South Bend, Indiana. And we try to follow in the tradition of Dorothy Day and Peter Marin, practicing the works of mercy, as, as Chris pointed out. Um, we look to Matthew 25, the reading that we had uh, on, on the Feast of Christ the King. Uh, these works of mercy include feeding the hungry. And here in our county, St. Joseph County, uh, before the pandemic, uh, there were about 36,140 people who were identified as food insecure, and 57% lived below the SNAP threshold of 130, 130% poverty. Uh, Pre-pandemic at the national level, 21.8% uh, of African-American households and 18% of Latinx households reported food insecurity, while the national rate was 11.8%. Uh, in the context of the pandemic, as, um, as both uh, uh, Chris and Craig have noted already, there's no doubt that we're seeing an exacerbation of uh, a longstanding problem. And um, uh, they are both more well positioned than I to offer you the best data. Uh, but I would like to just focus our attention on the ways in which the pandemic exacerbates the effects, particularly for those who are most vulnerable. So where life is in jeopardy, um, we are seeing this every day um, uh, in the context of COVID-19, uh, those lives are at risk. And that's where the Catholic social tradition invites us to focus our attention uh, in a particular way. Um, Chris and Craig already mentioned um, data from uh, Feeding America, so I won't repeat that. But I, I will just say that um, I was looking at a report by the American Association of Medical Colleges that notes that, quote, since food insecurity and poor nutrition are associated with several chronic illnesses that put people at higher risk for more severe complications of COVID-19, 
the food access crisis threatens to exacerbate the already glaring disparities in health outcomes for vulnerable people, including low-income people, children, older adults, and also immigrants who are living in the United States without documentation, uh, because then they are not eligible for assistance programs in the same way as other people. Researchers also reported in the New England Journal of Medicine in September that, quote, though the factors underlying racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 in the US are multifaceted and complex, longstanding disparities in nutrition and obesity play a crucial role in the health inequities unfolding during the pandemic. A healthy diet rich in fruits and vegetables and low in sugar and calorie dense processed foods is essential to health. The ability to eat a healthy diet is largely determined by one's access to affordable healthy foods, a consequence of the conditions and environment in which one lives." Unquote. And so they are um, raising more and more this, uh, the, the idea and now a movement of um, food as medicine. Um, so essential is it to overall well-being. And so I'll return back to the, the context that I mentioned here in our neighborhood of Monroe Park uh, with a majority black population. There is no grocery store within a mile, which qualifies our neighborhood as a food desert, according to the USDA. And when we talked with our neighbors about food access, most said that they took the bus or paid for a ride to Walmart, with, which is about a 3.4 mile trip south of us. Otherwise, they indicated the gas station Quick Mart on the east end of our neighborhood was a last resort when their children, where their children tend to get high calorie, low nutritional value foods. So in this sense, our neighborhood is more of a food swamp than a food desert. And all of this is occurring within a 10 to 15 minute drive of very rich farmland. Uh, but as in so much of our country and our world, industrialized agricultural operations in our region aren't producing food to meet the needs of immediately surrounding communities. And in response to this situation, our Catholic worker community started a cooperative grocery store in 2011 that operates out of our drop-in center called Our Lady of the Road. And the goal of the Common Goods Grocery Cooperative is to source foods as locally, healthily, and affordably as possible, aligned with members' preferences. And we work with local farmers as much as possible. Um, and we're actually in the process of, of um, arranging to build a hoop house so that we can grow vegetables through three and perhaps four seasons uh, right next to the, the co-op. So against this contextual background, I'd like to highlight some particular touchstones of Catholic social thought that might help shape our, our discussion tonight. Um, first, I. I would point to Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical Laudato Si on uh, care for our common home, where he emphasized uh, a few key points, uh, the interdependence of all of God's creation, of which we humans are part, um, the intrinsic value of each member of creation, not only human life, but every member of creation, and also the dangers in light of the climate crisis upon us of a throwaway culture and mindset predicated on consumption without limits. It is not sustainable and it threatens all life on the planet. So from a Catholic perspective, 
pro-life must include being proactive about building climate resilience because all life on earth is at stake and that the food security issue is front and center in relation to the climate crisis. Um, secondly, this lens of interdependence points to a longstanding commitment in the Judeo-Christian tradition to an understanding of justice as right relationship. We are called to right relationship with God, our brothers and sisters, and with all of creation. And in this light, I follow other scholars like Teresa Mares and Devon Pena, who have suggested that we consider speaking about food justice and food sovereignty rather than food security. Food justice recognizes the structural aspects of justice as right relationship by including uh, attention to the intersection of gender, race, and class as they affect one's possibilities for accessing nutritional, health, affordable, and culturally appropriate food. Food sovereignty emphasizes that such access is indeed a human right, and food is not merely a commodity and cannot be treated that way. In the Catholic social tradition, human rights are always associated with corresponding duties, um, as Craig was mentioning. Um, uh, we saw this in John the 23rd's Pachamenteris, and I think the, the part that you were quoting, Craig, um, resonates very well with what Paul VI said in Popular and Progressio, and he was quoting St. Ambrose. Um, if, you, if you haven't helped your neighbor in need, you've killed him or her. Um, so such uh, is the correlation between rights and duties. Um, and these, this correlation is directed toward the flourishing of each person and every person as part of the common good. So I cannot claim a right to food without also ensuring that my hungry neighbor can exercise that same right. In his most recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti, Pope Francis points to the parable of the Good Samaritan as a model of the kind of social friendship that Jesus invites when we encounter a brother or sister in need. This relates to the principles of subsidiarity and solidarity. Uh, and these, as, as um, you noted, Craig, uh, are very useful in, in effecting food justice and food sovereignty. Subsidiarity involves meeting the needs uh, at hand at the most local level possible. And solidarity, John Paul II said, takes root in a moral awareness of interdependence, the conviction that we are all really responsible for all. I would just want to add one thing in relation to what you said, Craig, about subsidiarity and SNAP, um, that yes, ideally we would work to meet needs at the most local level possible, but the other piece of that principle is when needs cannot be met at the most local level possible, they need to be referred to the next higher level of social organization. And I think given the magnitude of um, uh, food security issues, food justice issues in, in our country and in our world, I think there are very good arguments for involving higher levels of social organization to meet these challenges, particularly in light of the climate crisis. So precisely on the grounds of interdependence, subsidiarity and solidarity, the Catholic social tradition has consistently affirmed the value of cooperatives uh, of all sorts, as Benedict XVI did in Caritas and Veritate, for example. People exercising their moral agency by ensuring rights and duties together as part of the common good is at the heart of a cooperative vision. Um, 
And I'd point as one example, um, besides the one uh, associated with our community, to the West Oakland Food Collaborative, uh, which is located in an area of Northern California with one grocery store serving 40,000 residents, primarily um, uh, low income and black. It seeks to foster relationships specifically between the urban black community and the region's black farmers. Based upon their ethnographic research, Allison Alcon and Carrie Norgard report that members of the collaborative, quote, attribute the historic decline of black farmers nationwide to the USDA's denial of loans, subsidies, and other support that enabled white farmers to transition to mechanized agriculture, unquote. So the West Oakland Food Collaborative uh, offers an important urban market venue for black farmers while also addressing the systemic roots of the dearth of healthy, affordable food options in their local community. As Alcon and, and Norgard note, with, quote, with nearly 1.5 times as many corner liquor stores as the city average, as well as an abundance of fast food establishments, West Oakland is, typically of is typical of low-income African-American food deserts in other cities, unquote. Creating an alternative local food system that affords urban black residents access to healthy locally grown food and provides black farmers with market space serves the end of food justice by transforming the structures of institutionalized racism and white supremacy. Their experience and witness points to a fourth key contribution of Catholic social thought that I, uh, I'd like to lift up here. And that is the preferential option for the poor and vulnerable, which entails viewing social and economic reality from the perspective of the most vulnerable. So to the extent that the poorest and most vulnerable members of society like the residents of West Oakland find ready access to the basic goods required for human flourishing, it serves the common good of the entire society. As the US Bishop stated in their 1986 pastoral letter on economic justice, quote, from the scriptures and church teaching, we learn that the justice of a society is tested by the treatment, uh, by its treatment of the poor, unquote. When some members of society experience deprivation of that which is necessary for their integral well-being, the common good of the whole society suffers. Attending to right relationship as part of the adjudication of justice contributes to the restoration of the integrity or wholeness of God's creation. So I'll stop there. I know that there'll be um, more time for discussion as we move forward. Thank you very much, Margie. Those were terrific reflections. Bruce, on to you. All right. So what I'd like to do in the brief time that I have available is um, to look at the particular way that the, these principles of Catholic social teaching that Margie has talked about uh, are used in looking at the question of food insecurity. Art in in his 1961 encyclical. Um, uh, on Christianity and social progress, Pope John XXIII recommended a process of social action uh, designed in Belgium with young workers through which lay people could change the unjust and so social and economic conditions that, that they faced. This process he used with, with young Christian workers and other groups. And the process involved three steps. Observe, look at the current situation, 
uh, judge, evaluate that situation in terms of the gospel and the social teaching of the church and act, decide how one can change the situation to better conform to how we think it ought to be. So I'd like to use this process in looking at the social problem of, of food insecurity. So what do we observe about food insecurity in the, in the US and locally? Um, as, as Craig is and, and Chris and others have talked about, um, food insecurity before COVID was, was very high. And since March of this year, food insecurity has greatly increased. And, and it continues um, in the, an analysis of census data conducted just be, uh, of a survey conducted just before found that one in adults at their household couldn't get enough to eat sometimes or often in the recent months. And, and one in eight adults, 16% of the adults in this country are in households that don't have enough to eat. In Corvallis, where I live, uh, as, as Craig mentioned, uh, with the support of the School of Public Policy, we're working with a graduate student to look for census tracts in Corvallis where food insecurity is expected to be high and where there may be holes in the food security social safety net. Uh, using a process that Craig developed actually in this mind the meal gap. We have some preliminary estimates of, of pre-COVID food insecurity in Corvallis that uh, suggest that the census tracts, and we're on average lower than national or state food insecurity, we're a relatively wealthy community. There are tracts that have up to 16% of the of the households that are food insecure, that we expect to be food insecure. And based on the work of Craig and others, I expect these post COVID estimates that when we develop them will range increase by 36 to 60% across Corvallis um, in, that, in those rates of food insecurity. So that's observed. How, how does scriptural and Catholic social teaching guide us in judging this level of food insecurity? Well, Chris mentioned the, the, the Gospel of Matthew where um, Christ preached that our salvation depends on caring for the least of these and, and that those of us who fail to feed the hungry um, in this life will go off to eternal punishment with the goats. And, and I guess the reflection here that the church has made on, on this and other teachings of Jesus um, have over the, over the last century or so um, ha has, has developed uh, the, the social teaching that, that Margie, Margie talked about and um, including uh, such themes as the preferential option for the poor and the principles of the dignity of the human person and the common good and solidarity. And if, if, if the, these are the lenses through which we're looking at food insecurity in our country and in our community, um, the, looking through these lenses at this issue should make us squirm. Uh, the existence of high levels of food insecurity in our world and in our country and in our community violates human dignity it represents a social condition that prevents pe people from reaching their potential that's required by the common good. And it fails to recognize our fundamental interdependence. Um, 
and tears down our sense of solidarity. So what, what does the Lord require of us? How are we to act based on our judgments inspired by the Catholic social teaching and the gospel? Um, it's Catholic social teaching calls us both to conversion and to action. Uh, we must, as the uh, shorthand uh, definition of Catholic social teaching says, we must change hearts and we must change structures. So this call to respect human dignity and promote the common good should, uh, uh, should lead us to work with, for creating social conditions where hunger doesn't exist and where people are able to fulfill their, uh, their, uh, their life, reach fulfillment more fully. Um, so Catholic social teaching challenges us to act and ask how given our individual situations, roles and resources, can food insecurity be reduced? And I'd suggest there are a couple ways uh, to, to, to act in our, own, in our own context. Certainly we can uh, be involved in the political process uh, to help increase the generosity of our food assistance globally and nationally. Um, but even locally, uh, without being involved in, in larger political process, we can find out about food insecurity in our own communities. And I would suggest that each should look at the mind the meal gap estimates and, and, and find out about what level of food insecurity is expected in your own in your own county, and most of these are pre-COVID estimates. Um, and but we also know, as as successful as as the SNAP program is, and uh, we know that one in three food insecure individuals lived in households that are unlikely to qualify for the federal food assistance. And so, that so a, a local. So social safety net is really needed for people who don't qualify as a, as a it's not what we would hope for in the, um, it, you know ultimately but it but it is something that can help people get through the gaps where they are experiencing food insecurity um, and and I know from my work in Corvallis as, as a volunteer for both the food pantry and the, and the, and the soup kitchen that um, in demand has increased for both, uh, both food and both prepared food and for, for groceries and, and other food. And, and we need volunteers to work in this with the increased demands. And so those of you who might be able to um, should find out what kind of emergency food security system there is in your community and, and learn about vo volunteer opportunities. Um, I, I would say, uh, uh, I, in my remarks, I've focused on how to use this observe, judge, act method to think about food insecurity, but this is the way that we, as a, as a tradition, approach this question. In fact, um, in his recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti, Pope Francis uses this process, basically. The first chapter looks at, 
uh, our current experience of shattered dreams associated with globalization, individualization, individualism, and the and the pandemic. And chapter two is a meditation, as was said before, on the parable of the Good Samaritan, asking the reader to consider how we react to the strangers we encounter along the road. The remaining chapters are called to personal and collective conversion and action aimed at renewing the face of the earth through increased solidarity, recognizing our interdependence. And Fratelli Tutti also calls for local action. Um, I'd like to close with just uh, my favorite section of, um, of recent, well, I guess not so recent anymore, Catholic social teaching it was recent when I, when I started. Um, it's uh, the 1986 pastoral letter um, uh, that was produced by the U.S. Catholic bishops um, in, a, in a document called Economic Justice for All. So at the beginning and the end of this document, I'm going to read you from the beginning and the end of this document. This ch the challenge of this pastoral letter, they say, is not merely to think differently, but also to act differently. A renewal of economic life depends on the conscious choices and commitments of individual believers who practice their faith in the world. We can't separate what we believe from how we act in the marketplace and the broader community, for that is where we make our primary contribution to the pursuit of economic justice. And at the end, they say the transformation of social structures begins with and is always accompanied by a conversion of the heart. But Personal conversion is not gained once and for all. It's a process that goes on throughout our life. And conversion, moreover, takes place in the context of the larger faith community through baptism into the church, through common prayer, and through our activity on behalf of others, on behalf of justice. I'm, uh, thanks. Great. Thank you very much, Bruce, very inspiring. Um, we are running a little bit behind schedule. So let me just uh, throw out a prompt to our three speakers. Um, and I'm gonna circle back to you in a few minutes, but I'll let you ruminate on these and then we'll go to a few questions. So I, both Margie and Bruce have, have called attention to the possibilities for local action, whether through cooperatives, volunteering in local food pantries or food banks, any of a whole host of different options. I think many of our listeners would probably welcome some suggestions on what are practical things they could do, whether it is, as Bruce suggested, check in with your local organization, whether it is to write a check to an organization that does good, whether it's to write your congressman to push for higher SNAP benefits. So I'm going to circle back and ask you for one or two suggestions in just a few minutes, but I'll let you think about that. Um, meanwhile, let's uh, let's go to some of the some of our listeners' questions because we have have quite a few really good questions that have come up. Um, several are around the theme that uh, Margie referred to obliquely uh, of the relationship between rural poverty amid plenty, where you see farmlands replete with crops and yet there are people struggling. So uh, one of our questions is from Michael Sigwalt. There is an irony of food insecurity in rural America. I had participated in a food distribution in a small Midwestern town and couldn't help but notice how we were feeding the food insecure while surrounded by miles upon miles of farmland. 
This seems to be the result of the proliferation of industrial ag and the subsequent demise of the more sustainable and agriculturally diverse family farm. I believe, but don't know, the industrial ag mantra of feeding the world is in fact a myth as a large majority of the corn and soy crops are not intended for human consumption. Should there be a renewal of the smaller, more diverse farms in favor of the large corporate model currently practiced? Craig, I'm particularly keen to hear your thoughts on that sitting in an ag college in Illinois, but Margie and Bruce, I invite your comments if you wish as well. Okay, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll first respond. No, this is, this is always a tension is that as agriculture has become much, much more productive in the United States, it's had consequences for rural areas in terms of job loss and in terms of, um, and then in terms of, you know, people moving away from rural areas. Um, so this is, this is a long-term challenge. Um, I personally am very much in favor of the expansion of agriculture and the commercialization of agriculture to, to use that language. I think that, you know, given that we have declining amounts of farmland is that we really do need to become a lot more successful at growing, uh, growing crops. And then in the U.S. really we are, along with a few other countries, the breadbasket of the world. I don't think that the good work being done by our farmers across the country, and, and these family farms are almost all family farms, can be diminished. I think it's really important. Um, and even the classic example of soybeans, even though soybeans are oftentimes criticized as being not for human consumption, but they are fed to animals, which we then eat, and there are a lot of other things. So in other words, is I guess I personally am a proponent of the commercialization of agriculture, in part because it drives down prices, which and for low-income households, whether it be in the U.S. or around the world, if you have lower food prices, it does enable people to consume more than they otherwise would be able to. We know that high food prices is a serious impediment to the food security status of people in the United States and around the world. I know that what I'm saying is not going to be popular with everyone, especially when I go on to say I think GMOs are great, but is that I really hope that the audience will at least respect what I'm saying in terms of the importance of having successful commercial agriculture. If I can maybe jump in quickly and observe that the Nobel laureate Amartya Sen in, in perhaps his most famous volume, Poverty and Famines, opens with a sentence that says, hunger is not the condition of there being enough food to eat, it's having enough food to eat. The connection between agricultural production and hunger is much more tenuous than many people imagine. I work primarily in smallholder agricultural communities in Africa, where they wish they had much more productive agriculture. And as a result, they would probably have less hunger. But the, I think the key issue is really around solidarity much more than around the, the precise nature of the farming systems. Uh, at least that's my experience. Bruce, Marky, I don't know if you have reflections. You both have, uh, have spent some time thinking about this and obliquely mentioned the topic. Yeah, thank you. I, 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 you know, I think about um, the work of Wendell Berry that's been a real touchstone for me um, and uh, aligned with what Pope Francis um, is saying in La Dottosia about a throwaway culture. There is an attitude of, of commodification of the land itself that I worry about in industrial agriculture. And um, at the local level in local communities around the world, um, what would it, what could it look like to retrieve practices of um, growing food on smaller scales, but uh, but with greater frequency, 
So um, here in South Bend, for example, we have something called Unity Gardens, and it's a project. There are about 50 gardens all over the city, and um, they're cultivated on empty lots. And wherever wherever people uh, would like to establish one, basically, and the food that's grown is there to be picked by anybody who's in need. And um, it's just been of tremendous benefit to help people make a connection back to the land, even in the midst of a, um, a kind of desolate urban environment. Um, so there, there's a lot more to say about this, but I, I do have hope that um, there is a kind of agency possible among peoples around the world who do have traditions of agrarianism that have been lost. Um, I think about the work of Vandana Shiva in India, uh, trying to um, work at the institutional level to uh, stand up for the Indian farmers, you know, who have been crushed by um, transnational corporations interested in profit, um, not so much in feeding people. Um, and so anyway, I could say more about that, but I'll stop there. Bruce, did you want to weigh in on this topic? Not, not on this topic. Okay. Um, then why don't we move to a question we got from James Kaiser. Uh, this is perhaps first for Craig. James asks, Walmart and DoorDash's SNAP solution is a thousand times the impact per dollar compared to building food pantries or soup kitchens. Do you have thoughts on how this will impact the future of addressing food insecurity? In other words, are tech-enabled social impact initiatives the way forward on food security, particularly in urban areas? And Margie, I'll be interested in your thoughts because you, you've raised the challenge of food deserts, poor people who don't live in easy access to a grocery. Yeah, and, and at, at least from the angle that I see it, um, there's also a, a technology gap. So people don't have access to the sorts of apps that would help them access things like DoorDash or um, there, there's an information technology gap as well. And um, so it, it, it may be more convenient for people who can stay home. Uh, basically, you know, you think about the pandemic and people who can afford to have groceries delivered to their houses versus the people who are actually going to work in the grocery stores. Um, I have a neighbor who works in a grocery store and you know the things he's had to endure because he's considered an essential employee. Um, he's trying to help feed people, but he's got an incredible uh, pushback <laughs> of all sorts about things like mask wearing you know, that without masks, uh, his life is, is really in jeopardy. Um, so I, I, I'm more skeptical about um, uh, those examples of uh, technology because uh, there's a problem with access there too. Craig, we saw a technological change when we switched SNAP to the electronic benefits transfer cards. I don't know if you have any thoughts because I know you studied some of that transition of SNAP. Do you have thoughts on using these systems? Yeah, so I'm, a, as Margie might guess, I have a slightly different perspective on this. I'm a, you know, Walmart really has done more than, has done a lot to address food insecurity in our country, both for their foundation, but more importantly, by bringing food prices low. And I know that this is not unambiguously good. I know that there's some trade-offs to this, but again, for low-income housing in the United States, one of the most important determinants of food insecurity is the prices they face. 
I mean, in a place like Houston or Dallas where food prices are relatively low, people can afford food. They earn the same income in New York or San Francisco, you're not able to afford that food. So I really think Walmart has been at the forefront of this. I think that these new methods of delivering food can have some really big impacts in the following sense. It's coming back to my discussion earlier about people with disabilities. A lot of people with mobility disabilities, it's easier for them to have food delivered. And maybe we have to think about increasing SNAP benefits for a number of reasons. But one thing is to make sure that people have the resources so they can afford to pay for these things. Senior citizens in our country oftentimes may face struggles of going out to a food store. Having it delivered to them is a great thing. I mean, I know even a lot of food banks are now moving towards this thing of delivering food to people. So I think it really has a lot of opportunities to, to, to do to do this sort of thing to improve the well-being of people. Coming back to your question, sorry, Chris, I want to previous answer the previous one. But in terms of EBT, one of the great things about EBT is coming back to what I was saying earlier about the dignity and autonomy asserted with SNAP is that whenever somebody's using SNAP, it makes me proud to be an American. I'm like, it's great that we have this program for everybody. But for a lot of people, they look down on people who are using SNAP. So it used to be for those of you who are old enough like myself, is you remember that you have to use coupons. I go to a store and I use coupons to pay for it. Electronic benefit transfer card gave people dignity and autonomy. So nobody really knows if somebody is using or not using SNAP benefits. And it's reduced a lot of the stigma that's facing low income households. And what we saw is when EBT was implemented, it increased the number of people on the program because the stigma was reduced and it made people stay on the program for longer. Great. Bruce, any thoughts? Not on that. I, All right. I've been thinking about your earlier question, though, and when we get back to that, I do have some thoughts. Well, I was going to pose to you uh, in particular, Bruce. Uh, Brian Corbett asks, do you have any suggestions on how scholars, students, universities can become more involved in advocacy regarding public policy, such as related to the need for expansion of SNAP benefits during COVID and for more extensive farm bill? Well, that's a big question. So I, 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 do I have any suggestions for scholars about how they can advocate? I mean, I think advocates require good information and good information requires thinking about uh, what, what, learning about what's happening locally and, and learning about how people are affected by the policies that are coming down at them. So I believe that some in, information about um, uh, some some knowledge about how people use benefits and what are the barriers and what are the are is an important uh, aspect of the scholarship, but but I also think that scholars um, and advocates th this idea that action and and conversion are interrelated I think is really important and and that one of the ways the the change of heart. Um, is is part of the process, um, and and the change of heart can be um, stimulated by learning about interaction with the people who are affected, and learning about the effects of of food insecurity on people's lives, uh, learning their stories, and 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 I think so. I I, I would urge people who want to be involved in advocacy to to become more aware of the lives of the people that they're advocating for. Marky, Craig, do you have thoughts on what those in universities can do, especially around advocacy? 
That's yeah, a great question. Um, at the Center for Social Concerns here at Notre Dame, uh, we had have an advocacy seminar and students choose particular topics um, to pursue in, in the context of group work. And actually a few years ago, a group of students did work here at the local level to try to ensure greater food, um, uh, food access for people who have been incarcerated. Um, and they were successful in that. But it, it was a formative process as part of the seminar, um, much along the lines of what Bruce is describing. Um, so developing a facility with writing op-eds to the local newspaper and, and then attending public meetings um, and, and growing accustomed to engaging public officials in that way. I think those are all good ways to begin. Um, and the, the person who asked this mentioned the 50-year farm bill. Um, Wendell Berry has, uh, has written really eloquently about the possibilities of that farm bill. And I think it would repay attention as part of an advocacy effort. Yeah. So I guess the only thing I would say in terms of advocacy is the Center for Social Concerns is wonderful. In fact, that's how I found out about Caso and Diego when I was at Notre Dame. It's a wonderful organization there at Notre Dame. Um, I think that one of the things is that when you're younger, is you're able to a lot of neat things with with your lives. And I think one to come back to something you brought working with people who have been incarcerated or who are incarcerated. We have an incarceration problem in our country that leads to a food insecurity problem in our country. And I think that that's an example of something really neat that students can learn about in a very hands-on way to figure this stuff out and gain a lot more compassion for those who have been incarcerated and who truly are deserving our, of our help. So we have three questions that are all around a similar theme in my reading of them. Uh, so with apologies to the questioners, if I uh, take some liberties with interpretation, Margaret Cornelius asks, how long does it take to access SNAP benefits once one becomes food insecure? And how would you change the SNAP program in order to address the persistent food insecurity in this country? And I think the subtext of much of Margaret's question is around a dignity question that, that you raised, Craig. Mark Edwards, building on this, says, I love Craig's emphasis on dignity conferred to people using SNAP. Do you think it still confers dignity if we were to build into SNAP some incentives to purchase healthier foods without telling people they cannot buy less healthy foods? And finally, Natalia Prato asks, how do we go about making these issues, which those in positions of power so often dismiss, as issues which solely affect those in marginalized and financially disadvantaged groups, how do we make those personal to those who have privilege and power and the ability to make change? And can you name explicit ways in which we can offer dignity of choice, whether it's type of food, clothing products, et cetera, to those who are often denied it? So there's a consistent theme across multiple questions. How do we design programs like SNAP to reinforce dignity and yet to also encourage personal responsibility? So thoughts? I guess I'll, I'll take take these on. Uh, I'll first take them on. Is I'm not sure if this is Mark Edwards from Oregon State, but if it is, hello, good to, good to have you on this thing. Um, is that, if it's not Mark Edwards, good to have the regular Mark Edwards. <laughs> but at any rate, is from the standpoint is, I first want to address this issue of SNAP, is that SNAP, fortunately over time, has become a lot easier program to get onto. Things have been automated, but it's still too challenging for people. We should make this program easy and automatic. 
In fact, for uh, Chris's amazing journal, Food Policy, as I've written a paper, well, at some point, I hope, because, but at any rate, about the universal basic income for SNAP, making it automatic for people to get SNAP, which I think would really be a, a neat thing. Two things that I think need to be done with SNAP is, first of all, expand eligibility. As both Margie and Bruce said, is there's a lot of ineligible people who are not getting SNAP benefits. So let's expand eligibility. Second thing is that we should expand the amount of benefits. Uh, I have a paper with colleagues, Brent Kreider and uh, John Pepper, where we argue for the fact is that if we raise SNAP benefits by roughly $160 a month per household, is that we would see a reduction in food insecurity among SNAP recipients by about 60%. Because despite getting SNAP, a lot of these households are still food insecurity. So expanding out these benefits for them it would also take away a lot of the burdens that Margie and Bruce, you see when people come into your, to your shelters, you give more to other people. The final thing is, is I, one thing I love about SNAP is again, is I really think that we have to confer dignity and autonomy to people. And one of the things is I'm vehemently against anything that would make them feel that they don't have this exact same choices as others when they go into a grocery store. I'm vehemently against restrictions. I'm less against incentives, but I really think that we should be treating SNAP recipients as anyone else. We will give them food and then we allow them to make their own choices, coming back to this consistent with their cultural and other preferences. So I think I addressed all those questions, but I don't want to take too much time away from Bruce and Mark. Just a Mark? couple of quick things. I, um, uh, I don't know if you all have seen this wonderful TED talk by Ron Finley. It's called The Gorilla Gardener of LA. And um, he, he has started a movement using the, the greenway strip between the street and the sidewalk um, to grow food. And uh, he has a wonderful line in that TED talk. He says, if, if kids grow kale, they will eat kale. And I think about um, what I, I agree with you, Craig, uh, that the idea I think is not to restrict people's um, choice and what they choose to buy with SNAP benefits, but rather um, increase the the uh, appeal of the options available. So, for instance, um, there's the Double Your Bucks program that um, allows um, for uh, food benefits uh, to be used at farmers markets. And actually, that's something that our co-op has looked into, and our local farmers market does participate in. Um, so. If people had um, venues where they could buy fresh, locally grown produce, um, wouldn't that be wonderful? And and I, I think, I, I think that increases the possibility of people um, choosing healthy foods because they would be available, and they're certainly not available at the corner gas station. Bruce. I, I just reinforce what uh, Margie just said about the, there are local um, initiatives that allow people to use SNAP benefits and, and basically multiply them to buy local local food at, the, at local food markets, which, which move in the direction that I think Mark is Great. Well, so I, I warned you all that I was going to circle back and put you on the spot to give us one or two suggestions to close with. Um, and Bruce mentioned Fratelli Tutti, which I've been uh, reading and, and enjoying. So let me just read the last sentence of paragraph 64 to preface my call for you to each give us one or two things to do. Uh, Pope Francis writes, 
we have become accustomed to looking the other way, passing by, ignoring situations until they affect us directly. I suspect none of our listeners, thankfully, is being affected directly by food insecurity right now. What would you have them do so that they don't pass by and look the other way? Well, I think, you know, I, I think volunteering at a local food pantry or soup kitchen is one way of exposing yourself to the what, what we don't experience, those of us who are privileged in our lives. And that and I think that's one step on the way to this conversion of heart, which is which is required um, in order for us to move to move and act justly and correctly. So I think if one thing to do is to explore volunteer opportunities and take them because they will change your life if you if you if you take them. Great, thank you, Bruce. Margie. Yeah, I. I think it's related to what you just said, Bruce, but building relationship um, with people, uh, human beings who live in areas where food injustice is highest in one's own local community. So I think this can happen through parish twinning, for example, or boys and girls clubs. It could happen through volunteering at a, at a food pantry or a soup kitchen. But the key is building relationship and then allowing that relationship to inform one's conscience so that the step toward action um, around structural transformation can happen because um, we, can, we can meet the needs of the person who's just been beaten up on the road, but then we need to ask what, what's the structural system here that is leading to this person's harm? And not only one person, but millions of people. Um, I think that Structural work needs to happen and people who are very privileged have a special obligation to work for that transformation. But it happens through relationship. And Craig, what's your one thing that people should think of doing? Like, unfortunately, you chose the least eloquent person to finish this off. But I think that <laughs> one thing that we really have to do is one of the things when we did Map the Meal Gap for Feed America is to really emphasize is that food insecurity is in all across our country, every county, no area is immune to this. So I think we really have to think about, it is our neighbors who are in danger of food insecurity experience in this. And I think we just need to have a lot more compassion for those who are struggling and really thinking about the struggles. And I wanna come back to this, especially with those with disabilities is we don't always observe those with mental health disabilities. We don't always observe those who are struggling. So let's give people the benefit of the doubt and really think about how we can help them out. During COVID, as there's been a lot more experiences of food insecurity, as you correctly note, food insecurity has been increasing. Let us hope that this compassion that has been shown across our society to millions of people will continue along beyond COVID ends. Fantastic. So I guess I would just close with, uh, with, with my own final thought on this. I, I utterly agree with the need to build relationships. I also think we need to be very careful to recognize the systemic problems that give rise to the suffering in our own communities. I mean, we see a society that is more unequal than any we've seen in a century. The, the inequalities and the very real human suffering that disfigures our, our own communities and the entire world is something that we alone can tackle. So the people who are on this seminar this evening are literate enough to be online and paying attention to a seminar 
please don't underestimate your ability to influence your elected leaders and people in positions of authority within the corporate world and the nonprofit world. Serve your neighbors, but don't be bashful about speaking up to those in power. We really need all of you to speak up because lots of voices can be heard. So with that, let me turn it back over to Michael. I think you have a few final words. Well, um, I think on behalf of the audience and on behalf of Lumen Christi and Credo and all of the other co-sponsors, uh, a proper final word is a thank you to our panelists here um, for a rich dialogue uh, uh, between economics and Catholic social thought. Um, unfortunately, sometimes in the academy, it is too easy to live in our silos. Um, and one of the beauties, I think, of our church is that it can help break down some of these barriers, even those high barriers that we have within the university itself. So thank you for helping to model a fantastic conversation, um, focusing on these critical social issues that we all care about. Um, and thank you to our audience for joining us. Um, and finally, I wanna um, issue a word of gratitude to Credo for helping to organize this event, um, especially Chris and Craig as representatives of Credo for pulling this panel together. Um, and I'm further grateful to America Media, Catholic Charities USA, Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Chicago, the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame, the Department of Justice, Peace and Human Development of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, and the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities for helping to ensure the success of this event. Um, once more, thank you to our panelists, and I hope that you all have a fantastic evening. Take care. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you.